Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bias Check-In. Hi everyone, thank you for tuning in. So, we know, the government did not shut down, but it they also passed it on a Saturday night. We were long done with recording, and the information that Claudia shared is still very useful, so it might not have happened last week. It might happen in November. It might happen next year. We will see, but now you are more knowledgeable, and you're welcome. But what's been going on with us? So besides getting to nerd out about government shutdowns, um, last weekend was kind of my own fall equinox. I've just fully embraced the fall energy and... Also, I think I did all the socializing I have left in me for the rest of this year. I will say this is a silly thing, but I got to check it off my bucket list. I finally pet a cow. I actually pet several cows and they're so cute. Uh, But we went to an apple orchard because apparently that is a cutesy fall activity in the US. The sociology of which is lost on me. But they also had petting cows. And so it was really cute. And then... There was an Italian fair in Maryland, just north of us. And my nieces are trying to learn Italian. And they were very excited to show me around. It it was a fair. It was like a county fair with Italian flags around and signs that read Mamma Mia. Not, Not exactly a cultural recommendation. But it was fun and they were very proud of themselves. So I've been, I'm very happy. Aww. I've never been to an orchard, but... That does sound fun. The petting cows, definitely not. But I'm glad you enjoyed it. They're very cute. They're just really big cats, basically. Also, I did the calves, not the full-grown cows. So that helps with making them really cute. But they are kissers. So yeah, I could see how you wouldn't enjoy it. Lots and lots of hand washing was done. Nope, nope, nope. You would not catch me dead being kissed by a cow no matter their age. (laughs) Uh, For me, it's midterms. I feel like I know I just started and everyone told me that the quarter system moves so quickly. But I was like, yeah, yeah, like this is my second time at it. It'll be fine. And then midterms started. And I was like, I know nothing. I just started. This is week four. Like, I know week one wasn't actually like syllabus week. It isn't undergrad either. But I haven't learned anything yet. (laughs) What do you mean? I already have to take exams. But question, since you only had four weeks, Mm -hmm. would it be possible for it to be easier because you haven't covered that much material yet or is it no you're an adult this is a master's just process everything just do it in three weeks and a half I think half and half also like the one class that I actually had a full-on like exam for week three was descriptive statistics like I can do that in my sleep it was fine okay okay that's fair and All in all, I think I did very well on the exams. But still, it was like, how are we done? How are we midway? You? Yes. You doing well on exams? I try, okay? I try my best. 
again, that goes against, I think, every expectation anyone who's ever crossed paths with you would have, but by all means, sure. Sorry, I'm done with the sarcasm. Sorry. What else is going on besides midterms? Well, I am also a GA for my professor who taught us descriptive stats again. And he asked me to give presentations on generative AI and specifically using ChatGPT for all of his classes. So fundamentals of business analytics and decision making for managers are the two classes. Okay, so right. I I know at least a little bit from like K twelve conversations, so like teachers hate chat GPT because of course students try to cut corners. But once it gets to grad school, it, it's an instrument. So yeah. y'all are actually encouraged to use it for classes? Yes. It's the idea of like don't satanize chat GPT, but teach the students how to use it as a tool, basically. So for the fundamentals of business analytics classes, presentations, I actually used the first data set that he gave us and tried telling chat GPT, like, I am stuck with how to get the dimensions of this data set or how to get the structure of this data set. And so you plug in like, hi, ChatGPT, whatever. I In my R script, I'm trying, I'm using the deplier package and I want to get this and this for this data set, which the data set that I was talking about is already in R. So even ChatGPT knows about it. And can bring out the information. And so it tells you like, oh, this is one way you can get the column names. And it gives you the code and you can just copy paste it into your console. Okay. So again, I'm definitely not at that level of knowledge of our encoding and all things. So I'm just processing. Sorry, y'all, if this is okay. But then it's on the teacher to give you homework where you can't just copy paste from chat GPT or another AI, but you have to do your own intellectual work on top of it too, right? Yeah. So like our homeworks include like get the correlation between these two variables from this data set that he gives you. So chat GPT doesn't know the data set and can't import it. But if you okay. ask ChatGPT, how do I get the correlation between two variables? It'll tell you this is the format that you should write it in. So you can copy paste the format and then plug it in with your actual variables and data set. Does that make sense? Okay. And then it's, yes. And then it's up to you to get the. And then you describe the correlation that you're seeing, that you get. Gotcha. Okay. Again, very interesting because I, God, I feel old right now. Mm-hmm. I I was told I wasn't allowed to use Wikipedia <laughs> yeah. in, in school. That That's where I'm coming from with don't use technology or do use technology. Uh, so yeah, that, for that's my professor, interesting. For my professor, it's also that like, 
we get error codes a lot because we don't know what we're doing. And so instead of having to reply to every error code being like, yeah, you missed this or you missed that, you plug in your the error into ChatGPT saying like, I was using Diplier and ggplot too. And this is two packages. And I was trying to do this. This is the error code that it gave me. Copy paste the error code. And it'll step by step tell you, this is why you got it. And this is how you can fix it. Which actually saved me in my exam. So, (laughs) yay. (laughs) Gotcha. And again, I'm thinking of some friends that were doing computer science in college. I feel like any recent computer science grad must be so annoyed at the fact that now a solution like this is available for coding. Mm -hmm. Well, they had to just go through their own coding and figure out how do I write this in a better style? Where on earth is that wrong comma that is Mm -hmm. throwing me completely off? Yeah. But okay. Well, bringing it back to the presentations you gave about this, any chance that we can get the presentation on the record as well? Since clearly I don't enjoy talking about this at all. I don't know about that, but I gave you a pretty good snapshot of what I told students. Also, I'm a lot older than most of them. So it was very much the in-between of, am I actually teaching you something? Or is this all information that you have and you're just staring at me? So I also used a lot of TikTok videos that you can find on your own. Nice, nice. And I did see the slide deck I don't know. I cannot speak to whether they knew the material or they, you know, they were just smiling politely at you because they had to. But there were a lot of TikToks and there were a lot of puns. So that does sound fun. I just made it very clear that you have to input word for word what you want or ChatGPT will hallucinate. But aside from that and ingraining that into their brains, I think I did my job very well. Again, we could go down a whole rabbit hole of this because to me, the idea that an algorithm hallucinates, I think I know what you mean by that. I love seeing the silly things that people get out of it when they ask for the wrong things. Mm -hmm. And it's very much teaches you be careful what you ask for. Mm -hmm. Just took on a whole new meaning. But speaking of other spooky things, maybe we'll come back to that. Um you know, I just got my first Halloween decorations up and we're talking about more scary things in the workplace. This week, we are looking at the latest report on women in the workplace. And while we've come a long way, uh, we still have a ways to go in 2023 and well beyond it. So this is the ninth year of the McKinsey and Lean In report on women in the workforce. The sample size for the report was U.S. and Canadian companies, around 276 of them. They surveyed 27,000 employees and 270 senior HR leaders. And the results also looked at intersectionality of sex with race, sexuality, and disability. Jumping to the results of the survey, they are... Some of them cautiously encouraging, I guess. C-suite representation is the highest ever at 28%. 
comparatively good, but still far from even. And there is still a significant lack of representation of women of color compared to white women. Part of the issue to increase representation is that there's just a weak talent pipeline at the manager and the director level. The director level specifically, we see women leaving at the highest rate among professionals. The study report addresses some myths and some misconceptions about women in the workplace very explicitly and head on. So let's go through the main four. Myth number one. Women are becoming less ambitious. Well, if this doesn't feel familiar with the conversations we've had on the record before, I think it was a year ago, almost a year ago, uh, we were talking about whether you're ambitious in the workplace. I was talking about why my own ambition was evolving and changing. There's this idea that women are overall just less ambitious than men. And as you can imagine, as we're talking about it on a list of myths to be debunked. The numbers say that women are more ambitious than before the pandemic, especially young women and women of color. So when they looked at women specifically under 30, 90% reported wanting to be promoted to the next level and 75 reported wanting to become senior leaders. Across respondents of all ages, 80% of women wanted to make it to the next level and women of color more so at 88%. So if anything, with flex work and hybrid systems, women are reporting being able to dedicate more energy to their careers without having to sacrifice their lives outside of work. So when you were saying cautiously optimistic, this is definitely the encouraging part. That's not bad. Maybe an unexpected side effect of all of the changes of the past few years, but a good rebound. Yep. Okay, second myth the glass ceiling is the biggest challenge to women. The glass ceiling is a concept we've touched on before and the oldest name invisible hurdle for women in the workplace. Before we debunk this, a reminder in case you're not familiar with the term, the glass ceiling is an expression used to indicate the often invisible barriers women and minorities face in the workplace. The term has been around since the late 70s and entered mainstream culture so much that in 1991, the U.S. Department of Labor created the Glass Ceiling Commission to look into it. This little history lesson, if you will, just to remind us that the glass ceiling has been here and a thing for little more than half a century. The aspect that I hate the most about the glass ceiling is that even just believing that it's there will have an effect. It's particularly insidious because we saw a study from last year that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Women who believe that they are in a workplace with a glass ceiling show correlations with decreased organizational citizenship behavior and an increased turnover intention. Now, the relationship strength was moderated by how the women perceive their work-family conflict as well. 
So in other words, psychology studies the obvious. Women withdraw efforts from organizations that seem to have barriers for them, and even more so when the job seems to interfere with their home life. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it tracks. We just needed the numbers to back us up to state that. Thankfully, organizations are working on eradicating the glass ceiling. But as we know, hurdles tend to do when they're systematically studied and known, they have to evolve. So after the glass ceiling, we started facing glass cliffs. And the glass cliff is the idea that you might scale it, but you can also fall from it. Women who reach roles of leadership are more likely to be ousted from them or not hold on to them for very long. This also refers to how women are more likely to achieve leadership roles than men during periods of crisis and downturn when the risk of failure is at its highest. Women are often perceived as having the soft skills necessary to smooth the transition over or to improve the image of already a failing organization. But if they strive through the challenge, they manage to overcome it, they right the ship, women are likely to be pushed out then because they don't project strength as much as the male counterparts do. Speaking of holding on to seats of power for short amounts of time, the glass cliff is also different in each industry and affects women differently. And I don't want to be reductionist and just say, well, every experience is unique. That's another stating the obvious takeaway from this. But for example, a study found that political ideologies of the women candidates that were running for state-level seats correlated with different experiences of the glass cliff. Now, mind you, the data is from 2010 through 2016, so it could have evolved a little bit since. But as you know, I'm a nerd now for all things work and politics, so we'll see if that keeps up in the next cycle. So, yes, women in both parties face glass ceilings and cliffs in the races for House of Representatives. But the study did not find the same for the Senate. No matter what the cause for the difference in results between Senate races compared to the House of Representatives, there are also differences among party lines. So the GOP candidates statistically did worse on glass cliff races than Democrats, who were more likely to win once those conditions were accounted for in the analysis. The other thing that really mattered was also female participation to the campaigns. The Democratic candidates were more likely to win the races if more women were running in it, which is kind of how statistical probability should work, all else equal. The bigger the subsample you have, the higher the chances of picking from that subgroup. Uh, but did this not apply for Republicans? women were more likely to win only when the seats that they were running for were considered more winnable along other categories. So, for example, when their opponents, independently of gender, were politically weaker, 
where their opponents pulled poorly or if they committed offenses to the electorate, which cost them the election. Scandals, what have you. So going back to the myth, across all industries covered in the report, numbers show that neither the glass ceiling nor the glass cliff were the number one public enemy. Actually, the broken rung is the newest obstacle women face on the path to senior leadership. This expression indicates the barrier to entry at the earliest promotion stages. When it comes to making the first jump from entry level to a supervisory role, 87 women were promoted for every 100 men. And then compounding race factors made the gap even bigger with 73 women of color for every 100 men and 54 black women for every 100 men. Going backwards after seemingly progressing in 2020 and 2021. So this early career gap creates a lack of representation in the next career level talent pool and contributes to the smaller and smaller representation of women in the higher levels of leadership. AKA, less women to promote to senior manager than even less to director and so forth. Myth number three, microaggressions have a micro impact. As you can imagine, the numbers say this is absolutely wrong. Microaggressions have a large and lasting, well-documented impact on women. Women receive more microaggressions than men, for starters. Again, compounded for both genders by the intersectionality of ability status, ethnicity, sexuality, identities, and perception of those identities. For example, black or Asian women are seven times more likely than white women to be confused for someone else of the same ethnicity in the workplace. Microaggressions strip away layer after layer of psychological safety and create huge energy expenses to the recipient. You are less likely to take risks, voice concerns, and a lot of the day goes to defensive behaviors like self-shielding, code switching, or changing one's appearance to appear more quote-unquote professional. Women who experience microaggressions and put in this surface acting work of protection are three times more likely to think about quitting and four times more likely not just to burn out, but to almost always be burned out. Like, can we pause on this for a second? Like, they're more likely to almost always be burnt out. I can't believe this makes me miss when the numbers just told us about, oh, you know, if you fit into this profile, you might have higher chances of burning out. Now we're straight down the dystopian, unprecedented times of, look, burnout is statistically certain. It's here to stay. So deal with it, I guess. That's lovely. Almost. Yep. Ew. 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 Well... Last but not least, myth number four. It is mostly women who want and who benefit from flexible work. In a somewhat twisted way, I can see why someone would jump to this conclusion. 
because a lot of the expectations of unpaid work and tasks outside of our nine to fives or outside of our jobs do fall to women, whether it's childcare, family care for older relatives, just managing the family activities and the house. So flex time might allow for a better work-life redistribution. Again, kind of sexist, but logical, kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think I follow what you're saying. But men are also taking on more of the unpaid work outside the office. And even when this is not the case, they are not likely to turn down the chance to have more self-determination in their schedules. Numbers showed both men and women see flexibility as their top three employee benefit and critical to their company success. Working remotely, control over schedules are top benefits, second only to healthcare coverage. Even if you include more rare benefits in the equation, such as decent parental leave or childcare. Now, whether the organizations agree, that does not seem to be the case. Since more and more we see the push to go back to the office, or at least having a hybrid model instead of flex. And as so many companies have gone back to in office full-time, people still work there, even though a loud minority might have job hopped or switched to fully remote positions. It hasn't caused the overall exodus or second wave of quiet quitting that we might have expected with this. Fair, fair. It definitely feels like a few organizations have stayed committed to the fully remote and people are very, as you said, very loud about their preferences, but we'll see if their actions follow. Maybe we'll see their employee-led market make a comeback once the government actually shuts down or maybe once we remember how to interact and make inflation work for us. I don't know. What I know is that I would not hold my breath while I wait for it. Let us know, how do you experience working as a woman with other women? Is any of the myths or the studies that we shared popping to mind, making you think of your own experiences as you listen? Let us know in the DMs. You can find us under Bias Checking Podcasts on Instagram or leave us a voice message on Spotify for podcasters. We'll catch you in the next one. Enjoy your fall. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye.